0: your servant depart in peace. O oh Master,
1: according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people.
0: A light of
1: Welcome everybody back to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom. Welcome, Father Jeffrey. How's the morning over there for you?
0: Oh, pretty good. Um, We're approaching uh, Holy Week as we record this. So it's, uh, you know, kind of get everything, all our ducks in line for uh, all the services that are are going to come. Yep. uh, Another COVID Holy Week for us hmm. Sadly, but mm-hmm. um, we're, we're going to do our best to in our mission here to get people involved as much as possible. And, uh, you know, hopefully <laughs> look forward to future Holy Weeks and Pascha with, you know, where we can be back together next year in Jerusalem, as they say, in the Jewish Passover service. Right. Um, yeah. Next year, not in COVID. <laughs> <laughs> next year, not in COVID.
1: <laughs> yeah. So today's theme for our episode is we're continuing our series on the Song of Simeon, so the song that is sung by Simeon uh, in the temple, when he is brought when Jesus is brought as a forty day old child. And uh, the episode previously in the series was the biblical context where we looked at kind of how everything works in in that biblical uh, in the biblical uh, movements. But today we're looking at the historical development of the place of the song of Simeon in vespers. So the place of the song of Simeon in vespers. I'm going to make some kind of. Um, uh, I, I'm going to make some guesses as to maybe why it ended up in this place in vespers. Sure. Yeah, uh, and then Father Jeffrey, maybe you can sort of correct me or point me more in the right direction. Um, I think, in general, that the song has does has does have this theme of, um ending but beginning if that makes sense mm-hmm. right so it it says now let your servant depart in peace according to your word so especially in that that's related to the to Simeon's death and it's related to the end of the day it's also related to our death which we'll talk about in future episodes um so my assumption is people were just like ah this fits really well at the end of the this fits really really well at the end of an evening service um, I'm not sure if we have any evidence to say why people put it there historically.
0: Uh, no, I mean, uh, it's one of those things that um, you can only speculate based on, you know, what you know. We know from a very early period it was done as primarily as an evening, hymn, uh, If it wasn't at vespers, it was in something like an you know kind of early form of the the compline service, which is the after dinner or later evening you know service. So rather than just simply sunset, it, it was later um, in, in the evening. As such, I mean, th- there's very little evidence for it being at other times in the day. I think in the kind of earlier Armenian rite, they combined it. Um, with, um, you know, those other canticles, you know, from Luke, because of course, you know, three of the, the canticles that are used regularly, uh, in Christian worship come directly from these infancy narratives in, in Luke, right? The so-called, um, uh, Benedictus, which is the, the song of Zechariah, right? Uh, and then the Magnificat, the song of Mary. And then this, uh, what is called the nunc dimittis, um, which is the first two words of the the beginning of the canticle in Latin. It just means now uh, let... Uh, let depart, now let depart, nunc dimittis. Um, so because they're somehow linked, you know, in the Gospel of Luke, we know that in a lot of Eastern tradition, including in the Byzantine Rite today, the, the Magnificat and Benedictus, which belong to what we now have as the ninth ode uh, or ninth canticle of the canon of Matins. So these are mourning canticles in the East. In the Armenian Rite, at some point, the nunc dimitis belonged kind of as a threefold canticle uh, within the matins service. But uh, to my knowledge today, universally, east and west, the, the Nunc Dimitis, the Song of Simeon, is used as an evening canticle. So either at a kind of, you know, Vespers or Evensong, a kind of sunset prayers, or later in the evening, as you get sometimes in, in the Lutheran, Roman Catholic, and Anglican uh, rites in the service of Compline. But uh, I think it. it I mean, we can only speculate, as I said, you know, why that association, you know, with the evening. Uh, you know, we've spoken before. This evening kind of has this, you know, ambiguous um, connection to being both ending and beginning at the same time, right? So, in in, in the Jewish tradition, the day begins at sunset, but but in you know you know psychologically there is a kind of ending because we're about you know to kind of wrap up the day and and go to bed and and so forth so it's it you know even if you kind of insist liturgically it's the beginning of the day there is a kind of endingness to uh to evening uh we still in our evening prayers do a kind of recollection of the day's events and so forth so that the kind of psychological historical positioning of Saint Simeon is as a kind of you know we've We've gone through something. It's culminated. We've reached the end. The Lord is allowing us to to depart in peace. And remember, too, in the place of the service where this is located, I mean, we've had those that litany of supplication, right? Which where we saw the the kind of extension of what was being experienced in Vespers to the very ends of our life, right? We prayed for even a Christian ending to our life, painless, blameless, and peaceful. Well, who better embodies that kind of, you know, uh Christian ending to their life than Saint Simeon? He's he's kind of the the quintessential uh, quintessential uh, expression and embodiment of that life well lived, right? He's seen the consolation of Israel, and now he can depart in peace. And uh, the the idea that we could depart this life almost with this canticle, with this song on our lips it, is a quite a beautiful one. So uh, may it be that we end our life peacefully at the end of a day, simply singing, Lord, you know, now let your servant depart in peace, uh, because I have now experienced your light. And that light has been shined in and through my life and the life of my community, you know, to the whole world. So I think there's a lot of very obvious reasons, but nobody sat down and wrote, well, today we're going to add this song to this part of Vespers because X, Y, and Z. We can only speculate mm-hmm. and i think your your intuition is probably along the right lines it's certainly been mm-hmm. from a very early period uh the universal practice so
1: and that's the way it is with um uh, a lot of history is you you sort of have to start assuming things at certain points and just be open to the fact that you're wrong about them but um one of the things that i would assume is that if you're an if you're an early christian you know this is the you know an age let's say in the first few, uh, first few centuries of of the christian movement this is before the age of like the canons and traparian and all these written beautiful services and everything like that, that that we have um you would rely definitely on the psalms and probably especially these new testament canticles as well um and uh i can imagine i can easily imagine any of these New Testament texts taking a serious role in the liturgical and prayer life of the early Christian movement, even more maybe central than what we have today?
0: Well, absolutely. Um, You know, so, I mean, one of the pieces of evidence we have from its early use, um, you know, again, we refer to this document called the apostolic constitutions, uh, which again has, many different, you know, kind of forms or whatever. But one of the the kind of ones we have is late fourth century uh from somewhere near Antioch. Um and in its I believe it's uh um, let's see chapter 48, but it's section um section five, chapter 48 of the thing. And uh it refers to uh, a morning prayer and then an evening prayer. And these Prayers are taken, as you say, directly from the scripture. So the morning one is a quotation uh, in part from Luke chapter two, glory be to God in the highest and upon earth, peace, goodwill among men, which of course is the song of the angels at the birth of Christ, right? So anything that kind of is, you know, reminds people of something that sounds like worship from the gospels will be repurposed into a kind of prayer or hymn. And then when chapter 48, it gets to the evening prayer, it it reads as follows. It says, you children, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Quotation from the Psalms. And then it goes on with words that are very reminiscent of that Evening prayer, which we had spoken of, uh, we praise you, we sing hymns to you, we bless you for your great glory, O Lord, our King, the Father of Christ, the Immaculate Lamb, who takes away the sin of the world, praise becomes you, hymns become you, glory becomes you, the God and Father through the Son, the most holy Spirit, forever and ever. amen, so similar you know, to that kind of mini doxology prayer that that we spoke of, and then it quotes directly from the song of Saint Simeon, now, O Lord, let your servant depart in peace according to your word. And this is set in the order of, of the apostolic constitutions right before a prayer at dinner. So clearly evening at this point, you know, is, is suggestive of being before the dinner. In other words, it's not the late evening after dinner or Compline prayer. This is the sunset prayers. And we see already end of the fourth century, this kind of sequence of biblical quotations from the Psalms, and then this canticle in its entirety being used as part of the sunset prayers. I think.
1: Um, given the, the. Given the historical. I guess this is what I'm trying to ask. How confident can we be. That something written in one document. In one place. How, how wide ranging. Is that? And how do we know that? Like are there. How sure can we be. That a practice like that. Was practiced maybe throughout the Orthodox world, so to speak, because today we live in an age of technology. We can send emails. We know as soon as something happens. And there's a bit of, you know, we, we as Orthodox like to think of the church as having quite a bit of of unity, right, in our worship and, and how that all works. But when you're looking at the early church, at least from my read and, you know, you being my professor at school, um, there's there was a lot more of there was a lot more diversity um and and how confident can we be that one document in one place sort of represents an accurate sort of representation of, let's say the song of Simeon really being at the end of Vespers, and that was the genesis of it,
0: yeah, well, the um you know it's a it's a perfect question. And historians of liturgy, you know, debate this sort of thing all of the time. So, you know, all we can know, if we have one manuscript from one place, you know, from one time, we, we cannot extrapolate from that and say, oh, well, look what the early church is doing everywhere and at all times. We certainly, you know, don't say that. But something, a document like Apostolic Constitutions in its various forms and recensions does spread you know, very widely in, in the early church. So, although the earliest manuscripts that we have, you know, could be late fourth century and Syriac, you know, in a particular geographical location, you know, the, the translations of that in, in in Greek and in Coptic and Gez and in and, and other, uh, in Latin and so forth, you know, within a century or so are, are, are so widespread. So, we know certainly that they would be aware of this document, right? So we can't say that that means there's the practice, you know, exists there. But we would know that a document like this, which would be highly influential, remember, by the time Gets translated and sent round the, the the world and so forth. I mean, people are pretty convinced that because it says apostolic constitutions, that this must have been written by Saint Peter and Saint Paul and co. Um, so you know, based on assumptions like that, it, it has a lot of influence, right, in terms of, of what it says. But I think that the the more telling thing is that within a few centuries, by the time we get to liturgies that are written down, I mean, we refer to documents like this, which aren't. You know, in and of themselves, whole liturgies, their snippets, their, their, their references to liturgy, their, their little quotations from liturgy and so forth. But by the time we get to, you know, the 600s, the 700s, the 800s, we do get, you know, full liturgical books, full copies of, of what would have been used in services. And by that point, no matter which rite you're talking about, you know, whether you're talking about the Coptic rite or the Armenian rite or the, or the Byzantine rite or even the Western rites, uh, you know, St. Simeon's prayer is well established as an evening prayer kind of everywhere, right? So what does that mean? It means that by that point, you can say it's being done, you know, so eighth century, let's say, or ninth century, but, you know, if you have a document circulating in the fourth and fifth centuries that is talking about it, and then you know that in a couple hundred years later, it's well-established everywhere, you can make a fairly safe inference from that, that at an early point, this was a, a pretty universal practice, right? Um, so you're, you're right. We, we have no way of, of knowing and we can't actually go back earlier than that. But I would say, you know, if it's being talked about as an, a kind of established thing by the end of the fourth century in in one particular location, as you suggested, you know, the, the, the gospels are circulating early on and, and there's this often a very you know, reluctance uh, in the early church to, to want to compose, you know, completely new hymns and so forth. There's a real reliance on the Psalms and on the, on the so- songs as they, as are contained in the scriptures for the liturgy. Well, in that case, um, you know is it not fairly easily inferred that um you know these hymns might have been part of christian worship from the very beginning you no know, maybe not always and everywhere at the evening time and maybe not always and everywhere you know at every service but it is certainly easy to see that something like this which clearly stands off the page as a song would have been used like the magnificat the song of mary like the benedictus like the little bits of 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 hymns that we get in in the writings of saint paul too and it may even be you know that they go back so early that the gospel writers or saint paul himself are are quoting pre-existing christian hymns In their writing. So what's to say that, you know, St. Luke himself didn't write this down and, you know, attribute it to, you know, to this moment in St. Simeon and so forth, because it was already being used in Christian worship, right? By the time he was writing his gospel in the 60s or 70s, um, you know, we already have a generation or two of, of Christian worship and practice. So, I mean, I, I'm not saying we can say that with any certainty, but it's not unlikely that the things that are set off in the New Testament as hymns, you know, think of uh, Philippians chapter two, that, that hymn of the incarnation, right? Uh, you know, it, which in a lot of modern translations now does get offset and appear in a kind of poetic form, rather than just with the rest of the prose. Well, it could be St. Paul there is quoting, um, you know, a a pre-existing hymn that he knows of. And so uh, we don't know is the answer, but we can make these kind of best guesses based on what we know of human nature and practice, and also kind of working back from where things spread. And almost precisely because of what you said, that there is no instantaneous transmission. We know that if something is in about 10 different places at the same time we can probably backdate where it spread you know not by a week or a month or a year but you know by a few generations because it does take time for things to spread
1: The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public half of the overall project of enacting the kingdom. Father Jeffrey and I actively post new episodes on our completely separate private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate and discuss open and sometimes controversial questions regarding the Orthodox faith amongst a smaller and more dedicated audience. If you become a patron now, you'll get immediate access to our growing backlog of private episodes, including a discussion on the ordination of women and the coronavirus multiple spoon controversy. To get access to this private podcast, go to pryingpriest.com. Looking forward to having you join our growing community on Patreon. Now back to the show. Yeah, I think maybe a good metaphor that I, I was thinking of this metaphor as you were explaining that is, is one of um, a connect the dots picture, right? And each mm. dot is a, is a bit of evidence. So if you're, if you're, let's say we were investigating something like the Song of Simeon, like where did it come from? Or like wh- why did it end up, how did it end up being in Vespers? And there was only one piece of evidence that would not lend itself to any picture of of why or that would not give a story as to why it ended up in vespers but if you can say well we have this piece of evidence and then we have this other piece of evidence over here and we have this piece of evidence and this piece of evidence and a piece of evidence could be something like a document that says Do this during Vespers, or Mm. it could be the fact that there is a document of the apostolic constitution in one place, but also in another place and also in another place and also in another place. Those are all kind of pieces of evidence that you can use to connect the dots to try and get a slightly, slightly clearer picture of what's what's actually going on.
0: Yeah, connect the dots is exactly what they're doing. Yeah, and and you have to look at that on a map and on a timeline of history, right? So you're you're you've got lines between dots that are both geographic and temporal, and you're trying to work out what is plausible. You know, where what were the flows of traffic and connection and networking and so forth? Where were the trade routes? You know, because Christians would be traveling along those, and so you know it, you can make reasonable inferences based on on that kind of thing, but you. Know, there's no, there's no book of first century or third century worship, right? And uh, and it's it's long debated as to you know what Christians were doing and and how much of it was influenced by you know uh, pre-existing jewish practice or how much of it was novel and innovative in in the early church and that kind of that goes by swings and roundabouts in terms of you know scholars trying to make a name for themselves and and make a case for for particular things but i mean overall you know a lot of good people who have got a good sense of these things and an understanding of how oral transmission works and you know how how well you know cultural memories you know were able to keep you know, texts intact over time. And we, it's something that's unfathomable and difficult for us to understand because, of course, we are such a, a written uh, culture and, you know, very few of us have the memory, you know, for things. But, but all, you know, outside of even Christian transmission of, of texts and so forth, people know a lot about the way great epics were, were transmitted. Things like, you know, uh, Homer, um, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey and, and things like that, 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 that you know, were spread in many different places through through a lot of uh, of centuries of time and yet retained a kind of basic shape. Well, it's possible to imagine long before things were fully written down that large and complicated texts were passed down liturgically, um, as well as things like, you know, early Christian writings and, and so forth without it being, you know, compromised or, or necessarily changed. So it's, uh, there's a lot that goes into this Process it, you know. So it's not. I don't want to cast too many aspersions on the the accuracy of it. But you know, at the end of the day, what only what they can only say is we think that it might be like this, rather than we know for sure. Right.
1: And um, in terms of the song of Simeon, I think were you mentioning that it was in the sixth or seventh century that it seems to have locked in place at the end of evening worship.
0: Yeah, so if you're looking, you know, uh, by that point there are distinct rites that that have a written, you know, shape and form. So if you, you know, if you were to turn to something like, you know, the classic uh, discussion of the liturgy of the hours, um, you know, scholarly treatment, you know, you have something like the liturgy of the hours in east and west, um, which is, you know, by Father Robert Taft, a great scholar who, you know, sadly we lost uh, a couple of years ago now. Um, but you know, by you know, in his book, you know, he he will talk very much about the emergence of you know, the, the different offices, the Armenian, um, the Assyro-Chaldean, the West Syrian and Maronite traditions, the Coptic, Ethiopian, and Byzantine, all of these in the east. And then in the west, you have uh, the emergence of monastic offices and liturgy of the hours in you know, places like North Africa, Gaul, Spain, Italy, um, and, and so forth. And by the time they have these kind of distinctive forms right across all of them, and so in texts written down in the 600s, 700s, 800s, where we start to get these manuscripts of liturgies, you have Nunc dimitis showing up everywhere, right? So it's reasonable to infer back to the fourth or third or even earlier centuries that this was already something that Christians were wont to do.
1: And from that time until now, have there been any, I guess, adjustments or changes? I know there's lots of changes in church traditions, there's schisms, there's regimes, there's lots of things that have happened, but has, have, has that, uh, the Song of Simeon shifted its use in any liturgies or anything like that?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, a little bit, as I said, there's in the West, there's this, um, kind of bouncing back and forward between, um, the sunset or Vespers even song, you know, context for it and Compline. So, um, you know, I think, uh, in the book of common prayer, uh, originally it is in th- that even song position where, you know, if you look at the traditional, uh, BCP, you'll find it there. Uh, but, by the time the Book of Common Prayer gets begins to be revised in the twentieth century, like in the in the Episcopal Church nineteen twenties, uh, it goes to the Compline, you know, to a sort of sort of night prayer service, um, and so forth. And I think bel- I, in both Roman Catholic and Lutheran practice today, it belongs to Compline more than it does to to the sunset or Vespers prayers. Uh, in the East, though, it, it pretty much is fixed as as the Vesp and the classic Vespers. Um, you know, position for forever, but there are because of this ubiquity. You know, like with a lot of other of these canticles and so forth, you get absolutely beautiful compositions. So this is the other thing. You know, to be, uh, you know, talked about. You know, um, you know the, all the great composers that you might think of who wrote masses, who wrote, you know, Magnificats and others, they would also have written a nunc, um, you know, dimitis, And so um, it, it does have this really elevated pride of place in a lot of worship. So certainly when you get a choral, you know, evening prayer service, very often, you know, one of these, you know, renditions or, or compositions will be, will be brought out. I mean, the same thing in the East too. I mean, if famously in the Rachmaninoff, um, You know, all night vigil or vespers. Um, you know, he, he has a a beautiful setting of the Slavonic version of, of Nunk Dimitis. So it, it, culturally, it plays a really, really, you know, important, um, you know, thing as, as well. And it also figures in poetry and literature and everything. There's a T.S. Eliot poem called A Song for Simeon. Um, and, um, you know, it's, uh, you'll find that as a, a kind of motif, um, and and metaphor it's used throughout a lot of storytelling and uh, it's it has this powerful you know resonance right across our our whole culture
1: I think that there are some Orthodox Christians who that when they became orthodox, bought into a very stringent and staunch understanding of the unchanging nature of the church going all the way back to the apostles. And I can imagine discussions of historical development of liturgy can possibly be very uncomfortable for people who have bought into that kind of understanding of history. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going anywhere with a question uh, regarding this, but like, are there, have you encountered that? And, and how, how do you, I guess, in your own mind, navigate the tension between an orth, like us Orthodox, liking to talk about ourselves as being an unchanging church, but the fact that there there is so much diversity in practice throughout the history.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, you do. I mean, it's a it's a very naive position to take, and I think even the people who would state it as kind of baldly as as you just did probably have some notion of how naive, you know, that, that might be, although they, they maybe hope for as much as possible. And, and almost when you have a discussion like what we're just having, there would be a real, you know, uh, skepticism to think about, well, you know, that would, you know, based on everything we know, clearly we have to be able to say the apostles already were doing this. You know, in the upper room came evening, they were singing the canticle of, of Saint Simeon. And I have no reason to believe that that wouldn't be true. Uh, we have no evidence, you know, for it. But what I guess I would want to query in any, any sort of discussion with, with Orthodox who kind of take that line is, you know, why does that really matter? You know, what, what, what what are you staked on that? And what if you were to find out that they didn't, you know, that this really did start in the third century or the fourth century or something like that, you know, how does that change anything? Because I mean, as we have explored, you know, in our, the earlier episode, for example, on the biblical themes here, what absolutely matters here is what this points to, right? The song of of St. Simeon is powerful be precisely because it's not novel, precisely because it's not a new thing and expressing brand new theology, you know, at the time of our Lord's presentation in the temple. What's so important about it is that it is expressing what God has been saying to his people from the beginning, what his prophets have been calling his people back to in successive generations through time, through space. And that's what matters. This is a, a, a summing up. Remember, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What's that story all about? And that's the part that is uh, not unchanging because it's unfolding through time and through space, but it is It is the permanent intentionality of God, the permanent purpose of all creation. And that's the thing that is unchanging, right? When we say in the liturgy of St. Basil, um, at that prayer of the offering, that um, this true worship was offered even by the apostles, we don't mean the words of the liturgy of St. Basil. That would make no sense. Even I think the most naive Orthodox would not argue that the liturgy of St. Basil the Great living in the fourth century was served by the apostles in the upper room in the first century. But what is true about that and what that statement is all about is that there is a consistency to the true worship of the one true God, right? That thing which Abraham was called to do, which his descendants, his family were called to do. And those of us who are grafted into that family are called to do offer this true worship and To understand that that God of Israel is king and sovereign over all the world, and that we can enter into union with him as a covenant community, as his family, that's what is unchanging. And the fact that the Song of Simeon is a kind of capstone uh, summing up of that story, of that narrative— is beautiful, but does it matter whether it was used in the second century or only started to be used in the fourth century? It has been used pretty consistently since then, we think. But even if we stopped using it, it doesn't change the fact that the story and the narrative that we've been brought into, this story of the one true God, is what matters, right? That's the thing. You know, and so we shouldn't be staking our our faith on some kind of, uh, you know, unnecessary consistency uh, of words. You know, I mean, for goodness sake, we're speaking English here today. There's no way that anybody in the first century was using the canticle of St. Simeon in English, right? That English didn't exist. So there's all kinds of things that are the changeables, right? The, The variables through time. What is unchanging is what they are pointing at with whatever language you're using, whatever songs, whatever order of service, whatever, you know, structure of the liturgy, whether it's at Vespers or any other service, it, that's immaterial. What matters is that we are doing what the. The ancient patriarchs of Israel were doing what the prophets were doing, what the apostles, the martyrs, the saints in every generation are doing, which is offering true worship to God and entering into that space where God's presence is shared with us. We're brought into union with Him as His family, and you know that's the consistent thing. That's what matters. If that ever stops, you have something to worry about. But in terms of you know variations of practice and so forth, really, you know, we shouldn't be. I don't know, in some sort of naive fundamentalist sense, trying to stake... our our faith on that kind of kind of literal consistency of of text somehow through time. It's just not possible. And and it's never been the case. And it's never been something people have worried about until relatively recently, really, in in the kind of modern era of of kind of getting everything into tight boxes and categories and everything. It's just not, you're not going to find that in history. Don't worry about it. Worry about this bigger story, which as we pointed out in the last episode, people have got wrong, you know, and they've started to substitute other stories for it. They may have been using the same words and structure of service, but they're thinking something different when they did it. And that's far more devastating to our faith than would be changing, you know, the order of play of of some other services.
1: You've just finished listening to another public episode of Enacting the Kingdom. If you're getting value from this podcast and you'd like to support the show, you can head over to pryingpriest.com to become a patron. Also, five-star ratings with written reviews go a long way to getting the word out there about this show. Also, since enacting the kingdom is social media free, any word-of-mouth recommendations you can make to your friends and family would be greatly appreciated. We'll see you next time.